if you're trying to light a fire and you just pile loads of wood up together and light and light it, it won't burn because you need oxygen between the wood to fan the flames. And so it is with entrepreneurship or any kind of productivity endeavor. If you fill every single minute of your 24 hours with activities, it will look and maybe feel great, but you won't be getting as much out of yourself as if you put a little bit of oxygen in there to fan the flames. Hey everyone, my name is Jack Kavanagh and you are very welcome to the Only Human Podcast. We've all heard the phrase YOLO, you only live once. Well, in the case of Mark Maxwell, you actually get to live twice. Because at the age of 18, Mark actually died. He was clinically dead for about 20 minutes and his remarkable story of before and after and the shift in paradigm in terms of how he views the world and how his lens opened up wider after that experience is really insightful. Not only does he have a great story to tell but Mark is actively solving a problem that so many people in their 20s face that disillusionment at the early stages of their career. As the founder of Grad Life, Mark is trying to solve that problem and make what seems initially like murky waters a lot more transparent and easier to navigate. Mark is open, honest, insightful and an all-round great bloke. I'm really excited to share this conversation with you. Enjoy. Mark Maxwell, you are very welcome to the Only Human podcast. How are you? Very much. I'm delighted to be here. We've been talking about this for a while. We have indeed. It only took a couple of years to make it happen. That's all. Hopefully, hopefully it's worth it now. Hopefully I live up to the, to the long build-up. Oh man, there's a massive amount of hype now. So uh... <laughs> No pressure. <laughs> so tell me, how, how have you settled into these changed times during COVID? Uh, I have to say, it, it, it sounds, it kind of drives a few people mad when I say this. And I actually am at the risk of being insensitive because I know it's a really hard time for a lot of people. But personally, I, I do enjoy it. Um, it. It's a productive time. You get to kind of uh, just knuckle down, do a bit of work, try to get fit again, which I've, I've been uh, out of that game for quite a while. Uh, read a lot and just relax. It's it's been pretty nice. Um, and I'm also I'm in the house I grew up in, which I don't get to spend a lot of time in because uh, I live in London. I used to live in Australia. Then I went to before that I was I went to boarding school. So um, I haven't got to be in this house for a long period of time for ages. So it's actually been really nice, I have to say. Amazing. So I have a few questions on that. How has that sense of coming home been? Because it's it's an unplanned coming home probably for the second time in your 20s and we can get into that <laughs> yeah yeah um it's been good it's, it's just been kind of it adds a level of kind of tranquility or something to it when i think about um when i think about the idea of being in london now a crammed up in a one-bed apartment but uh b being in that big city with not much support around like a few good friends there my brother's there but um 
it's it's just it's not home you know and the attitude in london is different it's a colder attitude it's kind of everyone for themselves as opposed to being part of a, a real deeper community here up in meat um so yeah that is the big difference maker i would say and the beach having the beach nearby is is pretty cool for getting to go for the odd run and, and a walk and that sort of thing yeah it's those those basic things that we take for granted and so much of what your story has been about is exploring career and that's taken you to London and a number of other places as you mentioned around the world but when when things really come back to to basics it's that idea of coming back to a smaller community and being surrounded by family and I think a lot of people are finding that that as their worlds get smaller um not by their own choosing they're they're realizing the value that actually is in the family unit that they maybe have forgotten as 20 something year olds or 30 something year olds and uh, caught up in the busyness of life. And they come back to those like more local communities, maybe where they grew up and started seeing the place in a whole new light. So that's really nice. It's um, what you're touching on there is something I've kind of been obsessing about it uh, intermittently for maybe six months and I want to do something. I don't know what I want to do. Could even just end up being this podcast if we chatted about it. It's the idea of identity. And that is what coming home touches on or feeds or makes you question or something. Uh, and Or maybe even recharges or, or fulfills in a way that say if I was in London again, my example, uh, wouldn't quite do. You don't, it's harder to have an identity in London when something like corona hits and not that that happens very often and you're forced to ask a lot of these kind of uh, deep and hard and insightful questions identity probably does come up as one of those doing that from home is probably a lot easier and maybe makes you feel a lot better than doing it in a lonely and isolated uh, place like london i would say uh, have you found that as well like that that whole uh, i just find that identity thing fascinating and even like friends and myself as well who have lived abroad and then come home you can see it in them they now take an interest in their identity as well because something has happened there something's been challenged and uh or removed i guess they were removed from home and then they came back as something different and so their relationship to their home and their identity around that kind of gets challenged and probably evolves as well i find it really really interesting watching that happen yeah, well, it's that whole thing that you have to to know what home is. You have to go away. Um, and it's the stretching of the comfort zone. It's even if you think about the child when they're beginning to walk and they're taking the first tentative steps and their mum or dad lets go of them and they, they scamber a couple of steps away and they'll stop and look back for reassurance that it's okay, you know, because their identity is wrapped up in in the maternal or or paternal figure and it's like that home place is that comfort to us as well it's knowing that we can come back gives us the liberty to go out and explore and sort of see who we are and then when we come back as that changed person we see that place in an entirely different light that might be it that might be the the recharging thing yeah i'm thinking because I have gotten energy out of this. I've gotten, like, it's been, whatever, five or six weeks now. I actually don't know. Uh, but I've gotten energy out of that time. And it could be exactly what you're talking about there. Uh, plus the community element as well. Yeah. 
That makes sense. Yeah. So this is the second unplanned visit home from abroad you've had. And just before we go there, I really want to give people a sense uh, of yourself in your teenage years. And this is interesting because both of us went to the same school. You're the year ahead of me. And so obviously the younger the younger years always look up to the older years and and know them as almost like the big brothers or the role models or whatever that that um that we had in that boarding school environment and i'll give you my perception in a minute but i'd love to hear your sense of self during those years we can go two ways on this by the way you can tell me uh your perception of me as well. I'd be interested to hear. Um, oh yeah, I, I, I can give that. Um, my, I guess, sense of self, it probably did evolve in school a little bit as well, but to, to kind of oversimplify it, to be honest, uh, a jock among jocks, like totally just engrossed in sport, didn't really care, literally didn't care about anything else. Um, and just wanted to play sport all the time. And, and to say I was to say the word jock, I don't think I was an asshole. I certainly didn't mean to be, or, or didn't uh, envisage that. Uh, it's not like I, I didn't. I know I wasn't. I was. Just, I was nice, but I was just totally engrossed in sport. I was just a sport obsessed teenager and didn't want to think or talk or do or didn't think or talk about anything else or do anything else. Um, very motivated and very intense. And so I applied that to sport and kind of did ridiculous amounts of training for it and uh, obsessing over it and that sort of thing. That was, that was always a feature. Even before I went to school, I used to come home and practice kicking uh, when I was in sixth class and fifth class in primary school. And then during the summers, uh, for sport, sorry, for sport, I, I made the pledge at 12 years old. I, w- I would, wouldn't drink until I was 18 and I stuck to that. Um, so I used to go out to say like Wes or whatever in Dublin and come home to me later that night so that I could go up and train the next day. Um, and I was, I was totally into it. It was, it was mad, but I love that. And that, that, to be honest, it just made me happy. I always felt really good, uh, being fit and, and really kind of pushing myself. So that's definitely, that was at the very, very core of who I was since I was about 10 years old and maybe a bit earlier actually. And, uh, that, that does hold true today. I had zero self-awareness maybe, uh, or pretty close to it. Uh, very little consideration for others as well and their, the experience of me that I was giving them. And extremely narrow-minded. That would be my bit of, biggest criticism of myself back then. I give myself a bit of credit because I was a teenager and most teenagers are kind of narrow-minded. But I was just so tunnel-visioned on sport that you couldn't, uh, elicit an ounce of interest out of me in anything else other than sport, I would say. Uh, so that would be mine. And I, 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 I do always think I was nice. So when I say I was the jock, I wasn't like the asshole jock at all. Um, and there probably were a couple of them floating around, but I just kind of minded my own business, let everyone else mind theirs and my business was sport. Yeah, that, I think that's it's a pretty accurate reflection based on what I perceived. And I, I asked that question because you talked about identity a minute ago and your identity was challenged in a massive way in the years after we left school, as was mine, I suppose, um, which is quite interesting. 
my perception would have been I I would have seen you as like alpha male in terms of um like we were in a, a rugby school, you were a physically like what height are you? Six foot four? Six six five, yeah. Back then six, I was about six four, I'd say, yeah. Yeah, so six four, six five, you're physically imposing, like you're you're a big muscular guy and yeah, that intensity around sport was definitely something that, that I would have noticed. And, and like that as well, there was never, there's never malice there. Uh, like you weren't one of those kind of alpha, alpha males. It's just this like, like real intensity and clear focus about what mattered to you. I think that's something that hasn't left you is a focus the only thing <laughs> yeah but there's been a pretty dramatic shift in so many other parts of your life you talk about that single-minded uh, narrow narrow tunnel vision lack of self-awareness i think all of that shifted when you had a pretty big event in your life and so that happened just after after school really didn't it yeah, so I'll, I'll run through that story um, relatively quickly and spend more time talking about the things around it, the interesting stuff. Um, so, yeah, really into sport, obviously, and, and rugby was the sport. And um, the, the goal at that point was to just make a career in that. Like, there was a lot of people from our school that did. Something like uh, 10 out of the 15 people on our team ended up getting paid to play rugby in one way or another. Um, so it was a ridiculously good school and a probably a good period during in that school's history for producing good rugby players. Um, so my plan was to go down to Australia, uh, change position from the backs to the forwards and uh, then come back up and give it a crack. So I went down to Australia and worked in this school uh, called St. Joseph's in Sydney and got the key to the gym on like the first day. It was, it was an incredibly professional gym. And after that, uh, to be honest, like literally the rest was history. My job was to coach rugby, do a bit of tutoring and do a bit of uh, gardening. Like there really wasn't much else to it. It was probably 15 or 20 hours a week of work. And on top of that, we got paid a few hundred quid every couple of weeks and got free uh, food and, and uh, accommodation. I spent pretty much all that money. If it wasn't on drink going out, and I had started drinking at that stage at 18, I would spend it just on like protein and creatine and, and glutamine and everything that would help me train more. And I ended up building up this routine where I would train for seven hours a day. So I would get up in the morning first thing and do uh, like an hour of hill sprints and come back. Like, and I mean, when I was doing these things, I was dizzy, getting sick. Like I was training to the absolute limit almost every time. And like I would, I would probably twice a day be dizzy from training. It was insane. And uh, so do the hill sprints, come in, have a massive breakfast of like 12 Weetabix and six eggs type of thing. Then go out and do an upper body training, a weight session, come in, lunch, out again, a lower body weight session and a swim. Uh, come in, bite to eat, go out, coach rugby, uh, go in and do some tutoring. Um, and then go, either go to the gym again uh, and do core and then wake up again at 2 a.m., set an alarm for 2 a.m. to do more core and, and have a protein shake and go back to sleep for half an hour, or go out on the piss. And if I went out on the piss and I came in at 3, I would still get up at 7 to do the heel sprints. So that was, um, that was, uh, it was going really well as, as far as training, tra training regimens go. Like it, it, was, it was paying its benefits. But uh, a few of the members of staff in the school actually stepped in and, and kind of held meetings with me. 
and said that they were concerned about my training and my lifestyle and that I was uh when I say lifestyle, I was just training. I've never been into drugs or anything. Um, it was just that they knew I was totally overtraining and that I kind of lost control of it. Um, and I'd actually at one point got sleep deprivation. So I was really, uh, I was like totally lost control, to be honest. Um, and that lasted seven months. So I actually did that flat out for seven months. And then when myself and the guy went to New Zealand for what was supposed to be its week, we just left Auckland and we were on the way to Rotorua one morning and um, I was asleep on the back of the bus and the guys noticed that I couldn't really breathe and I was snoring really loudly and they thought I was taking the piss at first trying to embarrass them um, snoring really loudly and then they looked back and my face was fully blue and they saw that I was trying to hold myself up so I was like this <clears throat> and then like collapsing down and I was like 120 kilos at the, at the time so I was 20 kilos heavier than I am now so I was a lot kind of more built out and they realized something was seriously wrong. So they stopped the bus, carried me off, put me down, gave me CPR. An ambulance came, gave me six shocks with an external defibrillator, the thing that goes boom, shock in the chest. And uh, still no sign of life. So it was kind of announced dead on the side of the road. And I had been dead for just shy of 20 minutes. Then they put me in the ambulance, uh, gave me six more shocks, and uh, left me with a 99% chance of having brain damage if I did survive and I only had like a 5% chance of surviving. So it brought me back to the hospital then in, in Auckland and I was uh, put into a coma for a week just to bring my body temperature down. And uh, when I came out of that coma then, I did indeed have brain damage. I, I didn't have a short-term memory for two months. And it was funny, my mom was only talking about it uh, earlier today. Uh, uh, during that time, she would ask me what you have for lunch or what you do yesterday. And I wouldn't be able to tell her I wouldn't have the short-term memory. So, um, I, because of that, I was kind of thinking, like, how am I going to get this memory thing back? I didn't tell anyone about it. I always managed to duck and dive the questions or use humor to kind of deflect. Um, and I'd already put my, my family through, obviously, so much. Like, they, they flew down thinking I was dead. So, what I did was uh, I thought about it like an athlete. And if you wanted bigger shoulders, you do press. If you wanted bigger legs, you do squats. If you want a short-term memory, you could just learn a language. And that would be resistance training for your brain. And it turns out that's actually a scientifically proven thing. So that worked. So um, I got fluent in Spanish and got a short-term memory back uh, all at the same time. So that worked out pretty well. And um, yeah, I guess that, that's like, I'm sorry, that, the, the, the short-term memory thing and its battle with Spanish lasted for two months. Then it came, uh, came back, got better. My heart had recovered to the point where I was able to go up and walk around um, a lot more. Like I wasn't able to do that for the first month or so, uh, because your heart's been shut down for a, a, a week. Like, it's a pretty serious thing. And uh, I actually went back to Australia and finished that year in Australia uh, until July and then came back and did college and, and kind of went from there. And was kind of living a relatively normal life from there, I would say. Um, but as, as we kind of started off saying, identity was the thing that took the big kick from that, for sure. Yeah, and... It's it's no small thing to to die and come back and that is something that you could say just entirely shifts the paradigm through which you experience the world. And people say that one of the best ways to live your life is to often meditate on death uh, or death um, because it helps you to realize just how much we have to be grateful for and it brings you more into the present moment 
Would you agree with that kind of assertion? Yeah, completely. Um, the big thing that it did for me was, as we said, I was, I was extremely like single-minded before it happened. And it took away the only thing I was ever interested in, sport. And so it, it forced me to look for something else because, again, 100% of my interests were now gone. And uh, what it made me appreciate was all the options that are out there. And it made me interested or open to being interested in a lot of things because I needed something to fill that 100% with. And I went around just trying out loads of stuff that I never would have tried out before. And one really basic one was reading. I would never have read a book before unless someone had a gun to my head it was, or it was for the leaving cert. Um, and on the plane back to Sydney, when I went back uh, after all the, the memory loss, et cetera, and my dad gave me a book in the airport, The Lincoln Lawyer. It became a good movie after that. And it totally drew me in. It was written by a guy called Michael Connolly. And I ended up liking it and then buying another Connolly book. And before long, I'd read all the Connolly books. And then I Googled who's like Connolly and it was John Grisham. So then I read all the Grisham books and I just became a really avid reader. So that was one example. The Spanish is another one. Then I needed a sport. And after playing rugby for, I think, 14 years, since I was four years old, I found myself pretty addicted to contact sports. So I took up boxing. Um, and I actually made the UCD team. But then when I came to a fight against Galway, I took off my top and they saw the pacemaker. So I got thrown out of the UCD boxing club pretty quickly. Uh, <laughs> I tried kickboxing. I went back to tennis, played golf. I tried to do triathlon, but the, the cardiologist stopped me. I tried to do a marathon, the cardiologist stopped me. Um, the, 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 he also stopped me from kickboxing like uh, rowing cardiologist stopped me uh, I, uh, sword fighting or fencing um, the cardiologist didn't stop me there I just kind of got bored doing that but I've tried like a ton of things and, and I would never have gotten to try so many things if it wasn't for having the only thing I was interested in taken away um, yeah. so it really was it was an absolute blessing in that way uh, as you say appreciating all the options that are there and appreciating what you do have. That's been absolutely key, which I'm sure you would have gone through uh, as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, like my fascination was windsurfing and um, having to find a way to explore and find passion again was a huge thing for me, you know, and and that's essentially what you're describing there is is when it occupies so much of your mental capacity and so many of like the feelings of satisfaction and competence and of having sort of reward for the effort you've put in over the years built up all of those things that lead to sort of satisfaction and meaning in in the things that you care about when that's just taken from you there's a big void to fill there and and it does take exploration and it does take experimentation to to figure it out over time and it's very I um I talk about it as if like it's a girlfriend who died and you would kind of set your side like this is it, I'm going to marry this girl, etc. Like this is it for life. And then she dies all of a sudden and you need to go off and find another one. And uh, you might end up loving the other one just as much, but it's not the same person. And so it's a different love and it's a different uh, passion. And so I've never found rugby again. You've never found windsurfing again. But we found other things that... Uh, they're neither better nor worse they're just different and you evolve into having a similar level of passion for them 
Yeah, and it doesn't take away the memory of what that other thing was and the place it occupied. And so then as you went through your college years, you're dabbling in all these different things and you found yourself back finishing college in UCD and going back over to Australia. And this is where the point in your story where the second thing that you were kind of certain about was that you you were passionate about finance and, and essentially wanted to pursue um, making money to a certain degree. And this is when sort of the the ceiling or the, the glass was shattered for you for a second time because, yeah, well, I'll let you explain it, but um, really you realized it wasn't maybe what you might have imagined. And that's a big pain point that you've gone to now solving in other people's lives. So maybe take us on that little journey that you went on. Yeah, for sure. Um, so to give the really quick version, I, I as you say, all I wanted to do was work in finance. Um, I wanted to be a hedge fund manager, not because of anything other than probably the money. I'd say not probably the money, absolutely the money, nothing else. And uh, my brother was, he was three years old and went into finance. And for that reason, as a lot of people, a lot of younger siblings do, I kind of fell into the trap of thinking that what my older sibling was doing was the right thing to do and the only thing to do. And so I kind of automatically went into finance um, and I got my dream job. I was an energy trader in, or as an energy sales trader in uh, Macquarie Bank, which in Sydney is known as the millionaire factory. So um, you, like it, it's, it's ridiculous. There was a guy on my desk who made $15 million the year I was there and many others who made less, a bit less than that. So it was definitely the place to make money. Um, unfortunately though, I wasn't good at it and uh, I didn't like it. And when, and I'm going to zoom in on that Macquarie experience uh, again. When people talk to me about uh, the two kind of roadblocks I've hit, the heart was obviously uh, the first. The second one was that career in finance that, uh, that I didn't continue with. So that second one was way harder, way harder for several reasons. One, the heart thing people kind of say, oh, how did you recover so well from the heart and not be too damaged from it or anything? It's because I didn't have a choice. Like there was no option. There was just sit there and uh, sulk about it or move on. And I say that kind of with no element of judgment. Like the, practically they were the two options. And most people would have done what I did as far as I'm concerned. Uh, there, there really wasn't a choice. Like you just you just pick your things up and and, and keep moving basically. Uh, I had everyone kind of caring for me at that time. So I was the center of attention. Everyone was making sure I was okay. Everyone was going out of the way to make sure I was okay. And there was just so much support. It was, it was pretty incredible, actually. Uh, and it was also, I was young and I had options. And I felt like I had options. And I felt like I still had the world at my feet type of thing. I was still a confident young guy. Uh, that heart thing had added, as you, as you say, it made me appreciate the world a lot more. And so it had actually added a lot to my personality and kind of made me much more uh, gregarious, outgoing, happy in the world and not so single-mindedly focused and putting pressure on myself for sport. There are some of the things. Macquarie, on the other hand, when I uh, realized that I went into that job and just realized I wasn't any good at it. One, I beat my... I'm sorry, I could never beat myself up for having a heart attack. Like nobody could, you know, you can't blame yourself. Uh, Wendell Macquarie wasn't good at the job, but blamed myself, first of all. 
I was like, this is the, this is the job. This is the job you always wanted. You're such an idiot. You can't get good at it. Uh, number two, had no support around that. So I was uh, 22. I was on the other side of the world in Sydney on my own with no support network there. And if you haven't heard, investment banks aren't really the most supportive <laughs> environments. They're pretty cold and, and pressurized. So mm. I had no support around me at all. So I was beating myself up for being bad. I had no support around me. Uh, that confidence and the world at my feet feeling that I had, I was thinking, hang on, if I can't even do 16 hours a day on Excel and be accurate with my numbers, uh, I don't have a career in business at all. So I was on the complete wrong track. And I considered being a teacher for a long time. And actually, the confusion and, and kind of desperation for direction got so bad that uh, I was still reading tons. I was reading like a, a book a week or probably at that point a bit less. Um, I was reading two books back to back about the Jesuits. I got really into that because our school was a Jesuit school. And I really admired them. And I thought about being a Jesuit for like two weeks. That's how lost I was. Like I was totally fucking, I had no idea what I was going to do with myself. And uh, yeah, you can imagine me as a Jesuit, but the most foul-mouthed priest. But they were doing something interesting. They were all building schools and hospitals around the world and their legacy was incredible for impact. And I was kind of thinking that was cool. And I still do think that's cool. So I was thinking, should I be a Jesuit? Should I be a teacher? Like what the hell should I do? Um, no support around me. I had no confidence because I wasn't good at that data analysis domain. I felt like an idiot and I was made to feel like an idiot because of it. Not appreciating that there are many different types of intelligences out there. Uh, there's a social intelligence. There's actually like this communication intelligence, knowing how and what to say at the right time, which is crucial in say sales or a people management role um, and all these different things. But an investment bank didn't show me that. And it made me feel like shit for not realizing it and for not uh, being able to, to work well in, in the scope of their very limited uh, definition of intelligence. Mm. All these types of things hammered me all at once. and It was incredibly lonely, incredibly hard. And I, like, you, you've always known me as a confident guy. I honestly had no confidence. And I'd be going out and I'd be talking to a couple of lads and I'd be thinking, oh, these guys, like in my head, like these guys are probably good at their jobs. Like they can get it done. I can't get it done. It was really, it was crap. And um, at that point, I, I zoomed in. And I'll never forget, there was one, I used to go to the gym down the road from the bank. And I remember one evening coming back from the gym and I'd be constantly questioning myself, like, what the hell is going so wrong here? I know I'm not this fucking stupid. Like, surely I have some career ahead of me. And I remember thinking, okay, start from the basics. What do you not like about it? Well, you're really different to everyone in there. How are you different? Well, they're all really kind of materialistic and you're not. You're a pretty simple guy. And I was thinking, okay, values. My values are very different from everyone else in there. What else? Well, they're all really good at this Excel stuff. Like, I'm not good at it at all, but I'm really social. I mean, I know everyone. I know more than my manager. No more people in there than my managers would know, and they've been there for 10 years. Okay, I'm really social. What else makes me different in there? Bang, bang, bang. Uh, I come out with a list of values that I have. Uh, values and strengths and weaknesses. Then I was thinking, okay, uh, these guys don't value these things about me. They don't value the fact that I make such an effort with the community. They don't value uh, the fact that I'm good with customers, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they need me to be good at, at, at finance. And I kind of looked around thinking, what companies would value this? And mm. uh, the tech companies came up. Google was the obvious one. Uh, and I, I started kind of looking around jobs at Google then. A friend was helping me out, um, look into it, and managed to get a job in Google. And, and preferred that like so much more right from the get-go. I absolutely loved working there. 
Uh, this is still in Sydney. So like Google Sydney is just, I can't imagine a better place to work. The problem was the job wasn't intellectually stimulating. I was selling ads and for me, that just wasn't interesting. I, I was used to doing uh, like working with financials, the derivatives and options and structures. And I was using my brain constantly to the point of what I felt wasn't really using it as much as I'd like to. So that became a problem. And I took out my list of things I valued and I added that, added on intellectual stimulation. Um, and then I kind of got tired of all the uh, red tape and admin required to work in Google uh, in the role I was in. And it just kind of wore me down on how if I wanted something to change, it had to go over to like 16 people in America who I'd never meet who decided whether or not it got changed and how it got changed. So I didn't like that. Took out my list. Uh, bureaucracy. Don't like it. I don't like big companies. And I, I just by taking note of these little things along the way, I learned a ton. Like I learned everything about myself as a worker, what my professional mm -hmm. needs were, what my personal needs were, values, strengths and weaknesses, et cetera. And I ended up learning enough to, make, to start making informed career decisions about what would match those values, strengths, weaknesses, et cetera. Um, now, Google was, an people often think, I, I left Google after, after two years. People often think I left to go and find myself. The truth is I found myself in Google. Google is one of those incredible organizations where you can learn so much about yourself because they put so much in front of you. One thing they put in front of me was doing events, telling my story. And I did maybe one of them and someone said, oh, I'll do another one. Someone said, oh, I'll do another one, another one. And they, these events were getting bigger and bigger to the point where I just, it was nothing to do with me or my story. I was just emceeing events for people. And I ended up emceeing the national conference for Australia and New Zealand with like 1,500 people there. And um, it was basically a day-long event. And a bunch of people came up at the end of it. It was on a Thursday. A bunch of people come up and said, oh, you should uh, do this for a living. You know, you're pretty good at this. And I was like, nice. Saturday morning, I built a website. Sunday morning, built a Google Ads campaign. And uh, that all cost like 100 euro or something or $100. And two weeks later, then I got offered to do an event um, for two grand. And the reason I include Amazing. the numbers in the story is because two grand, like I was in business. That was a really good amount of money to get. And it was literally about four hours of work and $100 of investment in. So that just kind of shows people how easy it is to get going with something that might be a daunting task that you know you could be good at. I always make sure I include the numbers in that story just to show people how worth it it is to get going on something if you have a hunch towards doing something. But what's important there, Mark, and I, I was really conscious to, to leave you run that flow because I, I wanted to come in on so many of the things you said are, are so pivotal. And these are one of the big things that I'm really passionate about is that so many of the skills that we need to thrive in our lives are just not laid out for us. They're not taught to us. And we left the, you see all these books like How to Adult and things like that with those kinds of titles and well, how to spell. <laughs> yeah, it's the equivalent of, of, of being a kid again. But like you're you're fundamentally these things of identifying your key values, of learning the ways in which you thrive in a workplace, the kind of environments that stimulate or support or challenge or disengage you or all of these kind of things. And you with your, I suppose, certain level of, of really useful intensity that you bring to things and, and that curiosity that you developed post uh, heart attack, 
went about it in a real problem solving way but so many people just don't get um the opportunity to do that and they find themselves 10 20 years down the line completely disengaged in work um and really with a sense of disease about things and feeling numb to what's happening around them feeling like a victim of the circumstances in which they find themselves and that's that's a real pain point that you're solving with what you do at the moment but I just want to hop back to that piece that you finished with there which was you say about four hours of of work input to build the website and to run in a google ads to to get that gig that page of 2000 but it had taken you the time in the investment banking and the two years in google to get to the point where you knew you were supported enough in that work environment that they leveraged your strengths and put you in front of those kind of audiences to where this all made sense to you and that's a point that most people don't get to because they find themselves in jobs that they feel that they should be in they don't enjoy them and they don't support their their values and and the list goes on and they're doing both themselves and the organization that they work in a disservice and you were lucky to find people that supported you and put the right things in front of you to allow you to explore and 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 utilize the skill sets that you were best at yeah very true um and you do you find these kind of mentors and sponsors along the way uh that can help a lot with that sort of stuff that's definitely true yeah uh there's a bit of card there's a good uh, i think it was michelangelo did that statue the angel and I'm going to butcher his quote, but someone asked, how did you envisage the angel or, or how did you kind of come up with the vision for this thing? And he said, well, I could see the angel in the marble and it was just my job to chisel until it was set free. And to tie that in with what we're talking about, if you're in a job that you hate for two years before you find, say, that speaking gig that you love after two years, uh, that two years in the job that you hate, that's the chiseling. And the chiseling takes two things. It takes the ability for the marble, you, to take a lot of hits and a lot of little chips constantly. And it takes time. So not one big clump taken out of that marble is going to turn you into the angel uh, in the statue. It's going to be a ton of little ones, chip after chip here and there, this side, left side, right side, top, bottom, back, whatever. All round hits constantly over time and eventually you end up being the uh, being the angel and the angel in this case being the version of yourself that knows where it fits in the working world so mm-hmm. that's exactly the kind of process i'm trying to work with people on and preempt um with grad life yeah and we'll we'll, we'll get to that uh, just in a sec and i i think it's just really important to acknowledge for people that they're not alone in being completely disenfranchised in their early 20s. You know, you leave college and you think, like, I leave college and things are going to run smoothly. But it can be really, really challenging period for people not knowing where to go and as they figure all of this out. And it's just important to know that that sort of messy middle that is not wasted time and it can feel 
at the time like you're really clawing just to find something to grab onto but there's a lot of valuable information there about who you are and how you work and how you work best um you just need to tune into it so all of this led you to to solving or trying to come up with a solution to solve this pain point that you found within yourself that you experienced and to solve that for others and that led to this whole concept of grad life so tell us a bit about that so grad life like my grad life my life as a grad was miserable because i went into a job that aim i wasn't good at i was never going to be good at because i'm not uh, a detail analytical person and uh b didn't match my values so it was never gonna work out in that way now if you look at the whys behind both of those uh, why did i go into a job that the skills didn't suit me because i was informed that that was the best place to make money and that was my goal at the time and why did i go into a place where uh, my values weren't aligned because a i'd never heard of values and b i'd certainly never thought of uh, or landed on my own so what i'm trying to do preempt both of those pain points for people is uh walk them through a, what their values will be and challenge them. And I've got this uh, grad life framework for doing that and uh, it seems to work pretty well every time. So I'm going to stick with that. And uh, B then, give them more transparency into the working world. So let's focus on B. I do that with the podcast where I'd interview, I'd interview you say about working in, in Johnson & Johnson, what's it like, what the teams are in there, uh, what work each team does, what, what, what you do every day. Uh, like in reality, because a lot of people would say, I want to be an investment banker. They don't know you're on Excel 16 hours a day and that is absolutely shit. So if they knew what it was like day to day, they'd go in more informed and they might say, actually, I don't really like that. Or they might say, I want to work as an accountant because it's solid. They might know that on an accounting floor, like on the floor in those accounting places, you, like, you can't really talk. It's dead quiet. And that's just like a bleak place to be, in my opinion. Um so you might learn all these different things that you would otherwise never have access to and you can make your decisions based off of that. And then if they're going to one of our webinars or a one-to-one session, they would learn exactly what each person in each company does, what the career path is there for you if you go down a certain path would say like, I want to go to a marketing analyst. Okay, this is where you will go from there. This is how much you'll make. These are the companies that would hire you. This is how to get in. This is what you'll do every day uh, and give them full transparency because right now they don't have that. And going back to what I said earlier, my Macquarie pain was much more acute than my heart pain because the heart pain, again, I had so many people looking out for me and I was always going to recover from it. The Macquarie pain, I had no one looking out for me and I wasn't always going to recover from it. There was no way... uh, that, that was definitely going to end. Like the, the obvious thing to do was stay because the money was so good. And so it, to be, I, I give myself credit and I'll give anyone credit who leaves their first job. It took incredible courage to leave that job because everyone else was telling me to stay. But if you just kind of follow your gut, it really does end up working out in the end because you get to know your gut and your gut already knows you. So mm. uh, that's a key thing. Yeah, I love that. Your good already knows you. And that is very true, though, that people often will be really struggling in in a certain work environment and they think it's them. But oftentimes it's really not. It's just the fit isn't right. 
and that's nothing about you and maybe it's nothing about the company either it's just that you guys have got your communication mixed up and maybe you're not the right fit for each other i heard a brilliant quote the other day and it said the thing about communication is the illusion that it's happening at all and i i think that's really interesting in terms of um the way that you're operating with grad life because you're providing transparency and clarity for people where in an environment where otherwise there isn't any and that on the ground reality is so important for people to understand so you 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 leave you leave google and uh, in the months afterwards and um, spend some time doing the MC work before coming back to Ireland to get grad life off the ground. And I'd like to bring people to where that's led you today and what you're actually doing at the moment and how you're spending your time. Yeah, sure. Um, and I'd be happy to, to start by saying another thing that drives me mad <laughs> is uh, founders and entrepreneurs kind of constantly selling and saying that their project is going really well when it's not. Uh, it annoys me for a couple of reasons. One, just that uh, the, the weakness that stops them from being vulnerable bothers me. And two, it's not practical because if you tell me you're doing great, I don't feel a need to help you. If you tell me it's not going great, I'd say, tell me what's not, great, not going great about it. And it's in my human interest to, to help you and in my human nature. So people should always and that, that applies to students a lot as well. Like if they're saying, oh yeah, I'm going to be great next year. I know exactly what I'm doing. Then like, I don't know, your parent's friend at the party is kind of saying, great, I don't need to worry about you. Whereas if you say, look, like I'm pretty fucked. I have no idea what I want to do. They'll try to help you. So um, all that is to say, I went and started uh, grad life in, in January 2018, just fresh off the plane from Australia. And I wanted to do a, a data-driven graduate recruitment company. Wanted to do it uh, on my own. Kind of made the business plan. The numbers all made sense. It was it was it was going to work really well. Like it was going to be. The, basically, it was a solid business model. That's what I mean to say. Uh, it was just me. I didn't have a tech co-founder. Mistake number one. Uh, I didn't have any form of team. Mistake number two. I wasn't very technically like I'd worked in Google, so I knew tech well, but I, I wasn't an actual tech person. I was a business person. Uh, probably mistake number three. Not having a tech person at all. And so I worked on that for nine months and. Uh, went around and did my did the thing I'm good at, talked to all the companies, learned about all their needs and pains, and um, kind of, again, it, that all tied in with the plan and it all made sense. Uh, and then I went to an investor and the investor said, look, like you're going to need 300 grand to do this. Um, that's, that's a pretty reasonable amount of money and like we're happy to give it to you, but you don't have any sort of a team and you don't have uh, any technical know-how on your team. So until you have that, like you're, you're not getting anywhere. And I couple of guys reached out to me then and said, hey, we saw the podcast. We see that you're trying to raise money for this thing. We're actually doing pretty much the same thing. Uh, only we've got money and we've got a team and we've got the tech product already built. And I was like, God, this is the dream. So a uh, bit of negotiations, joined those guys. The, that company was called Birch. Uh, it's actually no longer a company. And uh, joined those guys. Didn't have the best feeling about them. Not that they were very bad guys, but uh, just as partners in business, I don't think we were going to do very well together. But as a, as a young founder on my own, I really, again, kind of felt vulnerable and felt, well, I'm much better off with a team. And with these guys, they seem to have what I need. I'll just join them. Went against my gut. 
And within probably two or three months, I just kind of said, you know what, fuck this. I'm not enjoying this anymore. It's taken the interest out of it for me. And I'm just going to bail and go off and do grab life on my own. Even if I can't have a big team and, and do the tech company, I want to work with people on this problem. That's all I want to do. I want to work with students and uh, young career people on this problem with them. So I went off, did that on my own. At the same time, I got a job in this company called Fivetran and uh, started working there. So um, started in Fivetran, was doing the grad life stuff on the side then. And uh, it was all kind of, to be honest, it was all actually going really well. I was flying all around Europe with Fivetran probably every week. I was doing about one or two flights a week just for this sales job. And um, that was great fun. I didn't have as much time to put into grad life as I would have liked, but it was still just... Uh, ticking that box of allowing me to work on my passion and making me a bit of money on the side. Around late 2018, I think in Morocco or somewhere, I met this guy. No, Morocco was the second time. First time I met Ollie was in, in Kerry at a music festival. And met this guy called Ollie, an English guy. And he had worked, he, he'd never gotten a B in his life. He'd only gotten A pluses. It was ridiculous. And he, got an, he obviously got job offers from all the investment banks out of college. Instead of doing that, he was so obsessed with working with this on students that uh, he went and worked in a disadvantaged uh, secondary school in England so he could give those guys better job prospects and, and help them out. He did that for two years and then uh, he worked on a tech startup on the side and then joined a, a, an, ed, an educational tech startup full time. So uh, that brings us up to really recently then, only about a month ago. Um, sorry. For the last two years, I've been talking to Ollie since I met him once a month about grad life, about how to help students, etc. And only about a month ago, he came back from America where he had, had gone and set up a startup for, or set up an office for a startup. And he's now joined me as a, as a co-founder. So what we're doing now is webinars where rather than me working one-to-one -one with a person and giving person A, B, C, D uh, the same, like say 50 or 60% skeleton and structure, we're, and then going off and doing talks and companies. We're instead going to do talks to uh, the masses and anyone can buy, uh, say, a ticket or whatever for this talk and, and go and get it for much cheaper than they would go to a traditional career guidance counselor. So we're trying to bring this to, thing to uh, the masses, no matter what kind of economic situation you're in, this is something you'll be able to afford. And we're trying to do it uh, in a way where we get to work with as many students as possible as well. So we're in the process of building up this model. Uh, we're going to do our first webinar in about three weeks. Um, so you can follow us on uh, Instagram on, on underscore grad life underscore to be changed. But uh, we're putting up some content there and we're going to be uh, doing this webinar in a couple of weeks. The first one's going to be free to give people a taste of what we're doing. Uh, so we're just really, really excited about that. And to have a, a, a partner in crime, a, a co-founder who is as passionate about this as I am and much more uh, kind of capable and intelligent than I am is pretty exciting. Amazing. It sounds like you're, you're like really pulling together the blend of skills that will make this tick so well. Um, I hope so. It's, it's been a long road though. It's hard by yourself. It's hard. Yeah, very hard. Um, how is that? Like you're obviously doing it on, on your own now as well. I found it, uh, hard to be disciplined. Uh, there were times where I found it hard to be motivated. They didn't last very long. Um, but there were times where I was like, God, am I really like, I'm putting myself through all this and um, am I really helping people out? And then you get an email from someone saying like, thank God I went to you, that, that saved me or whatever. And you're like, okay, I'm going to keep doing it. Um, yeah. Do, do you find it hard with the, the solo thing as well? 
it's a really good question mark because as many people listening will know I trained as a pharmacist and during those years similar to yourself I was exploring maybe how my values and skill sets could be best used within that and I found myself very much interested in the health promotion side of things and interested in how do we get people healthy and maintain their health and well-being rather than on just dealing with I suppose the sick care element of what is traditionally seen as healthcare. And so I wanted to be on the proactive side. And that fell in very closely for me with going through the years after having the spinal cord injury. And I threw myself into personal development work, into learning about psychology, into understanding how coaching work could be beneficial and really doubling down on learning about well-being and what it means to be resilient and to thrive in our lives in general. And they were the areas that I was studying in the evenings. Like I'd get home from college and just, it was like I started a second workday um, through, through college. And I would study personal leadership and well-being and resilience and leadership in general. And all of, all of those things basically led me to where I am today. I, I worked in different fields within pharmacy for a while and I loved the clinical side and I loved dealing with clients, but there was elements of that, of working in a traditional pharmacy role where I knew I wouldn't be able to excel at the whole role just because of the physical constraints and realities that I was dealing with wouldn't allow me to do that. And that was, that was going to be really frustrating for me on an ongoing basis. But I loved the communication piece. I loved working through people's challenges and helping them to progressively improve their health. Um, then I was loving all of the, the psychology and personal development area. And I had started speaking a lot during those years. And more and more and more, I could see that there was bigger value that I could offer in that realm and that I could get more sustained fulfillment from that than I could in the traditional pharmacy role in which I found myself. And I could help more people and in doing so help myself more. And I wanted to set myself up for a a work life that I really enjoyed and that I could really excel at. And it took me, similar to yourself, a couple of years to figure out how that would unfold and what that would look like. And I'm still in that process. And like you mentioned earlier, I worked with Johnson & Johnson for a period of time and I got really good exposure to different work environments. And I suppose ultimately what I came to learn was that I was more effective coming into work environments and working with teams and individuals than being full-time in that environment. And a couple of things around that was that you have more objectivity and perspective maybe coming in from the outside in sometimes. Um, 
you're able to connect in some contexts faster with people um but you give up other things like I trained to be a coach during that time to sort of solidify all the learning that I was doing and now what I do full-time is I I coach individuals I speak and and run workshops and that is what I am creating and have created as as my full-time business and it's it's interesting because you say how are you finding that element of being out on your own I really miss the team environment I I really miss elements of it whether that be in the pharmacy or different projects I've done over the years and the dynamic that you get with the team um I miss being in the corporate environment for for the amazing people that work there um and all of those kind of things the amazing people that I had on teams so that's a part that I do struggle with because having people around you is is like it's a buffer it gives you confidence when maybe you're not feeling confident yourself it helps you to dispel some of that self-doubt and that you have people to celebrate small and the big wins with and to um help through the challenging periods and um so that's an element that I do miss but for me the upside of um given my circumstances with the spinal cord injury of being able to control how and when I work of being able to manage my energy over my time is really important and and having enough time for active recovery in my life is really important because when I go out to speak or to coach or to do a workshop I'm completely on and I'm performing and I have to be there to add as much value for those people or the individual as possible and to create a good environment and I need to take active recovery and to have the space to to organize my schedule and my time to do that so that my energy stays balanced so like when I when I weigh the pros and cons I'm very happy with where I'm at at the moment that said similar to yourself I am involving myself and being invited to get involved with a variety of different projects which is lovely because it brings in that team element and gives you some of the buffers that you might not otherwise have as a solopreneur and I was only speaking to a guy yesterday who will be on the podcast in a couple of weeks Ian and he has been on a similar enough journey to me in this area as a teacher who uh, trained he was a he's a professional athlete as well and he could see that the skill sets that he had would be better served in a different area. And what's challenging as well about going out on your own or essentially being a founder of sorts is that you're carving a path where there is no path. Staying in a job like being a pharmacist or a teacher or, or the investment banking, there's certainty there and you know what the next steps look like. Whereas going out and doing something like I'm doing or you're doing with grad life there is that element of uncertainty that you're constantly dealing with and you are the creator 
And it's really interesting that the success or failure of that venture, a large portion of that rests on your shoulders as to the way the work that you do or don't do or the way in which you uh, engage with people and build a community who are invested in what you're doing and become your customers and your clients like all of those things that you have to to learn and you rightly made the point that one of the big things you missed was technical expertise as a founder for large parts of the early to mid middle of the journey you have to wear so many more hats than you ever were trained to do um and there's there's so there's all those kind of challenges yeah it's uh it, it's it's very tired like knowing that if you're not actively pushing the piano up the stairs it's either staying still or falling back down uh that's a tiring mm. thought <laughs> a tiring thing to carry around but i really I, I i can't say how much i admire uh how you're doing it i know you're doing well with it as well and, and you're going out and you're getting your uh, clients and, and probably uh, more aptly to say they're coming to you, which is um, which is a pretty impressive thing. So, you know, it's a, it's a great thing to be doing for sure. Yeah, I I have to say something that really stood to me was about a year ago. Somebody said to me, "If you're going to make this a business, and." in the early stages, you are the business. You have to value yourself. And they suggested maybe that I was undercharging to get people in in, um, in the early days and to build momentum. And to a certain degree, that's there's a fine balancing act there that you have to do when you're offering a service. To get people on board, you need, and to get sort of proof of concept and things like that you need people to come in and price sensitivity is important there and things like that um but they also said don't forget that you have been preparing yourself for this for the last five years in every course that you've done in every book that you've read in everything that you've done and implemented in your life to bring you to this moment and what you're doing and what you offer in whether it be a session, a workshop or a talk, whatever it is in my instance. It's it's not, you don't just show up on the day. All the work that's gone in before that needs to be accounted for. And that was a really interesting way of framing it um, for me. And it changed the way that I respected myself in terms of how I created the business and things like that um and a really important thing when you're starting out is is managing um your your work and play time because it's so easy to always feel like there's something else to do and what's more effective is being really clear about what needs to be done what are the highest leverage things and creating space and time to go at that really hard and then taking the foot off the pedal for a while and recovering properly 
and going again, you know, and if you're not recovering properly, you'll just burn out. That's a key thing. Uh, there's a good analogy for it that I saw once about if you're trying to light a fire and you just pile loads of wood up together and light and light it, it won't burn because you need oxygen between the wood to fan the flames. And so it is with entrepreneurship or any kind of productivity endeavor. If you fill every single minute of your 24 hours with activities, it will look and maybe feel great, but you won't be getting as much out of yourself as if you put a little bit of oxygen in there to fan the flames and give yourself a break. Totally. So it's, it's an interesting time for both of us. And one of the big things about Only Human is, you know, people put put different people in their lives up on pedestals, you know, and they forget that each one of us is going through our own journey and the highs and lows within that. And we're all trying to understand ourselves and to make the best of the circumstances in which we find ourselves. And I think, uh, a really useful framework to come at life from one that I've definitely found huge value in is to believe that at any given time everybody is doing their best and that based on the level of awareness that they have the level of sleep or energy or insight or or training or whatever it is or level of communication they've received on how to do something that everybody's just doing their best and that we're each only human. And so as we maybe come to the close of of this episode, Mark, and there's absolutely so much more I'd love to chat to you about, but I'm just cognizant of time. One of the questions that I ask everybody at the end of the interviews is, and I bring them back to this idea that none of us have any idea how long we might get on, on this earth. And you are a prime example of that. So you've actually had to consider this more than most of my guests. But um, when you think about that, when all is said and done, whenever that is, how would you like to be remembered and what is the impact you would like to have had? I think... And I, I think I'm, I'm taking this path, which is, which is, I'm happy to kind of think about as well. I always admire the people and I read a ton and I read about a ton of people and I always admire most of the people for whatever reason. And it probably is a modern thing. Uh, like in our, our, our generation value it generally people who try loads of different things and who are just multicolored people. Um, I always admire the business people who only do okay at business, but they, wrote books or played music or had a family or did acting or whatever on the side. Uh, and just, they were multifaceted people. I'd, all, I'd take that person above a really successful uh, one-dimensional business person every day. And so I'd like to be remembered as someone who, who did that, who, who explored every spectrum of the uh, rainbow as opposed to just one. That's something I love because when you do that externally and you look for everything there is out there, you end up finding more internally and you end up finding more of, of whatever's in yourself. And I'll actually give a personal example of that. 
during that time in Macquarie when I was really confused, bizarrely, absolutely bizarrely, I have no idea how I ended up getting into this. I started writing a blog and then I started writing poetry and putting poetry up online, which like, again, go back to me in school, I would never have done. And so I like to be remembered as the open-minded person who tried to do, uh, who tried to explore every uh, spectrum of the rainbow and who ended up exploring that within himself. That would be it. That would be magic. Yeah, it's pretty cool. (laughs) So yeah, I think that's what I'm chasing, chasing the rainbow. (laughs) Um, Brilliant. Mark, where can people go to find out more about you and what you do? Yeah, sure. So to be honest, because grad life is in such a transition at the moment, the best time, the best place to do that, uh, I'm on Instagram as mmaxwell92 or uh, grad life's on Instagram as underscore grad life underscore. And as I say, that will change. Uh, I'm also on mrgradlife at gmail.com if anyone wants to give me an email. Um, so through that and, and through probably this podcast going out on Instagram, you'll, you'll find me. And uh, if you're interested, please drop me a note. I love chatting to people. Mark Maxwell. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, my friend. Keep it up. This is cool. What has been so heartwarming about the Only Human podcast as a project is that it is creating a community. It's creating a tribe of like-minded people who are open to exploring new ideas and insights that can help them in their own lives. If something that was shared in today's podcast has resonated, it's hit home, maybe it's helped you to see things in a different way or added value to your life in some shape or form, please do share it with a friend. It's the single best way that you can continue to support what we're doing and help us to spread the message again if something has been of value today please do share it online tag us in the post on instagram on facebook on linkedin or twitter my instagram handle is jack Kavanagh, irl and thank you the feedback has been overwhelming and we really do Love having you along for the journey. Until next time, stay well, stay curious. Cheers. Mm-hmm.